Welcome to the 8th of February 2018 edition of Talking Newspaper. I'm Pippa Curtis, standing in as editor for this week's recording. As you may remember, Charlotte announced last month that she was going to be off for certainly this um, session because she was expecting her baby. And I have some very good news which I would like to share with everyone. Charlotte and Adam, and this is written by um, Charlotte, are proud to announce the birth of their son, Hugh Thomas, this morning. That's Thursday the 8th of February at 8.50am. Mother and baby are both well. Hugh is a bonny £7, 6-ounce baby son. And Charlotte says many thanks to all, especially staff at Worcestershire Royal Hospital. And I'm sure that you would like to join us in um, wishing Charlotte all the best and say warmest congratulations on the safe delivery of her son. Very thrilling news. So our readers today are Phil Lee, Evelyn Brock and myself. Just the three I'm afraid. Unfortunately Catherine can't join us today as she had a prior engagement. So let's start as usual. The team are sitting around a table in the recording studio and we will be reading clockwise. For our listeners, I'm going to ask the readers to introduce themselves so you can work out where they're sitting. Hello, I'm Philip Lee. Hello, I'm Evelyn Brock. And I'm Pippa. Please keep sending us your feedback by whatever means, as the team here want to make the recording as pleasurable as possible for you. If you know of anyone's birthday, please let us know and we will read it out. As usual, we have headlines, local stories, local sport, selected radio programmes, obituaries, thought of the day and birthdays. The items follow on and you can stop and start them using the big buttons on your player. You can also hear it on our website, worcestertalkingnews.org.uk, which has the magazine and the past recordings. If you have any trouble or comments, please contact us by whatever means is convenient. Our phone number is 01905-767-766. Please be prepared for an answering machine to take your call. A quick reminder about our Talking Book Library. It is free and is being constantly updated. And finally, we would like to thank all of you who have made donations. They are very much appreciated. The main headlines this week are Pair attacked and robbed Robber's acid threat to shop worker Drug dealer stole £15,000 from mum Our lifesaver, leisure centre employee hailed a hero Mum, I fear for my life And forced out Family firm to quit city So Phil, if you would like to start with the first headline story Thank you, Pippa. Yes, I will. And if you remember, it's pair attacked and robbed, and it appears over a rather large photograph of Drake Avenue at the junction of Tudor Way. A man and woman were attacked in their own home by robbers. Two men knocked on the door of the house in Drake Avenue, Dines Green, Worcester, and attacked the pair on Tuesday evening. They were rushed to hospital by ambulance. 
Their injuries are not, however, believed to be life-threatening. Locals believed that there was a stabbing, but police would not confirm this, as Worcester News went to press. The offenders then stole items from the home and left in an unknown direction. Police were called to the home shortly after 11.30pm to a report of an aggravated burglary. Police are now conducting reassurance patrols in the area. The attack is believed to have taken place at a house near the junction with Tudor Way. Investigating officer Police Constable Chris Buffery from West Mercia Police said, Investigations are now ongoing to identify and locate those responsible, and a number of inquiries are ongoing. It is believed to be an isolated incident. He continued, Officers from the local Safer Neighbourhood team will be conducting reassurance patrols in the area and carrying out house-to-house inquiries as we investigate the incident. And we would like to hear from anyone who witnessed any suspicious activity in the area or who witnessed the offence. Anyone who has information that could help the investigation is asked to contact 101, quoting incident reference uh, 796S of 30th of January 2018. Alternatively, information can be given anonymously to the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. My headline is from Friday, February the 2nd, and it's Robber's Acid Threat to Shop Worker. A robber who threatened to throw acid at a shop assistant unless she handed over the cash in the till has been jailed. Anthony Farley threatened the shop assistant at One Stop Convenience Shop in Poolbrook Road, Malvern, before fleeing police in his girlfriend's car, taken without his partner's permission. He crashed the car into a gate and ran off before handing himself in. The 28-year-old of Meadowsweet Court, Malvern, admitted robbery, aggravated vehicle taking, driving without insurance and failing to stop when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court on Wednesday, offences which also placed him in breach of two suspended sentences. Farley arrived at the one stop at about 8.30pm, bought a soft drink from shop worker Kayleigh Humphreys, a woman he had known for many years, before leaving and returning at 9pm, this time to buy some Rizzler papers. Again, he was served by Miss Humphreys. Mr Grice said, As she was taking payment for the Rizzler papers, he produced a clear plastic bottle containing a cloudy liquid and told her it was acid and he would throw it at her if she did not let him have the contents of the till. Believing it was acid, Miss Humphreys gave Farley £320 from the till. The defendant left the shop where he was seen by police running towards a Ford car parked in Geraldine Road, Malvern. Farley was followed by officers in an unmarked car and one of them asked the defendant to stop. His reaction was to drive away. The defendant crashed the car into a gate, dislodging bricks before running away, leaving behind his two passengers. Farley handed himself in to police at Worcester Police Station five days later. He told officers he had been going through his partner's handbag, looking for an e-cigarette, saw his partner's keys and decided to drive home. The offences also placed him in breach of two suspended sentences. The first was a 12-month prison sentence suspended for 24 months imposed last April. 
Farley stole £1,200 worth of jewellery and the electrical equipment, but left blood at the scene, which enabled officers to link him to the offence. The second was a 12-week prison sentence suspended for 24 months for two burglaries on the same shop, Bargain Booze in Barnard's Green, in July and August last year. Mr Grice said the offences were aggravated by Farley's previous convictions. He has 24 convictions for, 20, for 72 offences, some dating back to when he was a juvenile. In 2004, when still a youth, he was convicted of robbery and received a 12-month detention and training order. In August 2009, he was sent to a young offender institution for three years for a robbery with a knife. He has further convictions for shoplifting and possession of heroin. Barry Newton, defending, produced a medical report showing that at the time of the offending, Farley's doctor had prescribed an alternative type of antipsychotic medication. The offending happened at a time when he had come off his old medication and had yet to start taking the new. Mr Newton said Farley had made no attempt to disguise himself and emphasised an eight-year gap in his offending. He cited difficulties in Farley's personal life, including the death of his father in May 2017 and the pressures of being promoted to the position of supervisor at his door manufacturing job. Things all unravelled in mid to late 2016, Mr Newton said. Farley told a probation officer he turned to drugs while his father was ill. Judge Robert Jukes QC said it was a great disappointment that Farley had begun, begun offending again after apparently turning a corner, securing a work and a stable relationship. He took into account Farley's guilty pleas, entered at the first available opportunity and the hiatus in his treatment for mental health issues. Judge Jukes jailed Farley for four years in total, three years for the robbery, six months consecutive for the other matters and six months also consecutive, activated from the suspended sentences. He banned, banned Farley from driving for 18 months, a ban to begin at around the time he is released from custody after serving half of his sentence. So the headline for Saturday, February the 3rd is... Drug dealer stole 15,000 from mum. A drug dealer who stole 15,000 pounds from under his mum's bed while she was recovering in a care home has been spared jail. Paul Reed confessed to stealing the cash from Maureen Reed's home in Malvern Road, Worcester, after he was arrested following a chase through the city. The 55-year-old only came to the attention of police when they saw him driving while using a mobile phone. His car also had a faulty backlight. Reed of Sycamore Road, Worcester, had already admitted theft, supplying amphetamine Class B to friends, theft, possession of cannabis Class B, driving without insurance, driving otherwise than in accordance with a licence, obstructing a police constable in the execution of his duty and failing to stop when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court yesterday to be sentenced. He was carrying a bag in case he was jailed by Judge Daniel Pierce Higgins QC. However, the judge decided not to send him to prison, citing significant mitigation, including his early guilty plea. He described the theft of 
the cash from Reed's mum as a significant breach of trust. Michael Connery prosecuting said, Reed was seen driving while using his mobile phone on December the 11th last year at around 5pm. The defendant's response was to stop his car and run away, Mr Connery said. Reed was pursued and arrested. In the abandoned car, police found a metal box containing amphetamines on a back seat and in a glasses case. A search of Reed's home followed, where officers found scales for weighing drugs. No information was supplied by Mr Connery about the quantity of amphetamine, of amphetamine seized. Reed pleaded guilty on the basis he had supplied the drug to two or three associates, all long-standing amphetamine users like him. During police interview, Reed also confessed to stealing £15,000 from his mum in the flat where she'd lived alone for the last 15 years. The theft took place sometime between November the 1st and December the 11th last year, the date being when he was arrested in New Street, Worcester, after a chase on foot. Mr Connery said, She kept money under the bed. Mr Reed confessed she said several times to him, If you need money, get it from under my bed. He added, She now has memory problems. She doesn't know about the fact the defendant has taken this money. Some of the money was given by the defendant to his brother, Gary Reed, and some was seized by police, Mr Connery told the court. However, Mr Connery added, The figure of £15,000 comes from him. The whole case comes from his unsolicited confession. In a previous hearing at the same court, Abigail Nixon, defending Reed, said he was still close to his mum despite what had happened. Reed has 27 theft offences on his record and has rarely been given custodial sentences over a period of 40 years. Jason Aris, defending yesterday, asked the judge to suspend any prison sentence. He said, Were it not for the fact that this defendant made those admissions to the police about the fact he'd stolen the money and had supplied his friends with amphetamine, those offences would not have come to light. That is, I would suggest the best evidence I can submit to this court that this defendant is truly sorry and truly remorseful for what he did. Judge Daniel Pierce Higgins QC sentenced Reed to 12 months in prison, suspended for two years. Reed must complete 40 rehabilitation activity days to assist him in addressing his drug problems and 150 hours of unpaid work. The judge also banned him from driving for 12 months. The court heard that the police had seized around 5,000 of the money Reed had stolen and his brother had paid 3,500 of it into his mother's account. This is a story from Monday, February the 5th, and it's headlined Our Lifesaver, and it features a photograph of Mr Crow, whose life was saved, making a presentation to Simon Hawkins, who's the operations manager at Nunnery Wood Sports Complex. A leisure centre employee has been hailed a hero after using his first aid training to keep a 67-year-old man alive after he went into cardiac arrest during a game of squash. Sonia Vickers said that Simon Hawkins' CPR actions saved my father's life after Tim Crow collapsed at the sports centre. Mr Hawkins, operations manager, rushed to the squash courts when his colleagues called for an ambulance, managing to keep the patient alive before paramedics arrived minutes later. 
He said, I was on shift and was alerted to a situation on the squash court, so went round and used the training we'd received and was obviously overjoyed with the result. Afterwards, it felt like an episode of a TV show. Didn't feel like it had happened to me. You check for general dangers to yourself initially and try to get a response from the patient, he explained. You establish whether they are breathing and, if they are, you put them in the recovery position. If not, you go straight into CPR. It all happened very quickly. He said he trained as a first aider many years ago but has CPR refresher courses every two years and defibrillator refreshers every three years. Mr Hawkins, who has worked at the Sports Centre for 26 years, used conventional CPR and didn't need to use a defibrillator defibrillator, with the paramedics arriving so quickly. Mr Crow, who has seven children with the youngest at university and 13 grandchildren, had a successful operation two days after he collapsed with surgeons fitting an ICD, which acts as a mini defibrillator. An avid racket player, he previously had a heart attack three years ago and his heart only now functions at about 30% capacity. The doctors had said he needed to be really careful and I don't think that they thought he would be back into sport but he just loves squash, said daughter Mrs Vickers. She said he cannot remember exactly what happened when he collapsed last Wednesday although apparently he had played the first game and after a drink of water was back on the court. She said... Unlike a heart attack where there are signs you feel unwell, a cardiac arrest doesn't necessarily give any warning. She said ambulance staff later said he did not have a pulse for four minutes, with paramedics arriving about six minutes after the call, meaning that Mr Hawkins' efforts were crucial. Mrs Vickers wants to make people aware that having CPR training and knowing what to do in that situation could save someone's life. Mr Hawkins said he'd never before before performed CPR on a person, only dummies, and agreed, you never know when you might need first aid training. It just shows why it's so important, he said. Mrs Vickers said her mum, Joanna Crow, has banned her husband from playing squash again, with experts recommending that people should stop before they reach 60. At the time of his cardiac arrest, Mrs Vickers said her dad had played three games in five days and had planned another two for two days later. When Mr Crow, who helped set up the River School Worcester in 1985, had recovered, his daughter said he was more concerned if he had been winning than at what had actually happened to him. Mr Crow and his family paid Mr Hawkins a visit at the Leisure Centre on Friday, February 2nd, to thank him in person. My next headline is from Tuesday, February the 6th, and it reads, Mum, I fear for my life. And the subheading, I can't live like this, says personal trainer who was attacked by her ex-boyfriend. And there are pictures on the front page of both mum, Emily Russell, and the boyfriend, Edward Burbridge. A mum says she is living in fear of her violent ex-boyfriend since he was released from prison. Emily Russell, aged 31, from Worcester, was attacked by Edward Burbridge towards the end of an eight-month relationship. Burbridge was sentenced to a three-week consecutive prison sentence after admitting assault by beating and criminal damage on December the 22nd last year. Now that the 32-year-old is out of prison, mum of three, Emily, says she fears for her life. 
The attack was so bad that he ended up putting a hole in my eardrum, she told the Worcester News. Emily, who has children aged 3, 6 and 12, said that Burbridge is now stalking her and has made threats. Speaking of her fears, Emily, who has known Burbridge for more than 15 years, said, I can't walk down the road without the feeling that he is going to come behind me and do something. I'm a personal trainer and I can't go to work for the fear that he will attack me again and I'm having to get friends to take my children to school in case he is about. My life is at stake and my children's life is at stake. A West Mercia police spokesman confirmed that Emily had spoken to officers regarding Burbridge's conduct since he was released from prison. The Worcester News understands that Burbridge is now wanted by police. Emily added, I've had to move my fridge freezer in front of the back door so he can't get in. I can't live like this. I just want to be able to go out when I want. People have been telling me that they keep seeing him nearby and my biggest fear is that it's going to be too late. The Worcester News attempted to contact Edward Burbridge to offer him the chance to comment, but could not reach him. And finally, the headline for Wednesday, February the 7th. Family firm to quit city over shortage of suitable sites. A family business, which employs 30 people, is being forced out of the city because of a shortage of suitable buildings, the boss says. PSV Wipers in Navigation Road, Worcester, will leave Diglis Industrial Estate towards the end of April. The manufacturer has come to the end of its 25-year lease and cannot find another suitable building in Worcester. The Canal and River Trust is selling the section of the dilapidated industrial estate where PSV Wipers is based, but there are currently no public plans for the future of the land. Jamie Curry, commercial manager of PSV, which makes windscreen wipers, said, Worcester is becoming a place to live rather than to work. We've been forced to move, given that there are no new industrial areas appropriate for our use in Worcester. It's a shame to move. Our company has always been based in Worcester since its, since its creation in 1980. Other than Blackpool, which is very old now, there's nowhere for us to go. Mr Curry, aged 27, said people will have to commute out of Worcester for work if houses keep replacing factories. He added that the new industrial buildings being built in the city tend to cater for distribution companies instead of light manufacturers. It's appalling for British manufacturing, he said. If you're a small and medium-sized enterprise, there's no real commercial property between 5,000 and 20,000 square foot in Worcester, and we are 20,000 square foot. He said most of his staff will now have to drive to the company's new home in Pershaw, but he added that while he was sad to leave Worcester, he was also excited about the move. Gary Woodman, CEO of Worcestershire Local Enterprise Partnership, said there was a shortage of small to medium-sized industrial buildings. He said that size, i.e. 20,000 square feet, creates a challenge for the market. We are working with the private sector and local authority to increase the supply of those types of units. 
we recognise that we have to get some of those 20,000 square foot units on Worcester 6 Business Park. He said light manufacturing units are quickly snapped up when they become available in places like Blackpool. Mr Woodman added that agents are more attracted to larger sites as they can acquire longer leases from big companies. The Canal and River Trust was unavailable for comment on its reasons for selling the land. So those are all the news headlines for the week and we're now going to read some of the other stories that have appeared in the papers. And So Phil, if you'd like to start off. Yes, I'll do that. This is a story from Thursday, February the 1st and it accompanies a, a photograph of the Duchess of Cambridge and the headline is Kate Cuts Hair for Cancer Charity. The Duchess of Cambridge has donated some of her hair to a Hereford charity. The 36-year-old's hairdresser is believed to have trimmed more than seven inches from her usual length, which had been passed on to the Little Princess Trust. The organisation helps make wigs for children who have lost their own hair after receiving chemotherapy or radiotherapy treatment. Catherine's donation comes just over a year after One Direction star Harry Styles sent his ponytail to the Little Princess Trust. The trust, based on Broad Street, has been running for 12 years and was set up by the parents of Hannah Tarpley. The young girl who attended Hereford Cathedral Junior School passed away aged just five from a cancerous tumour despite chemotherapy treatment to help save her. A spokesperson for the charity said, Losing her hair was traumatic for Hannah, but finding high-quality wigs for children was difficult and only after a long search was a firm found which made a wig for her. She enjoyed wearing her wig, particularly on special occasions. After Hannah died, her parents, Wendy and Simon, set up a charity providing free children's wigs. Hannah's mother, Wendy Tarpley Morris, said, We have given away 5,500 real hair wigs to sick children, which is astonishing. We have also been able to fund research into finding causes and cures for paediatric cancer and research on less toxic treatments. My story is from Tuesday, February the 6th, and its title is Over 50 People Caught Without a Train Ticket. More than 50 train fare cheats were caught without a ticket during a peak time sting operation. At least six Revenue Protection and Security officers were at Fourgate Street Station yesterday morning for the Revenue Protection Sting organised by West Midlands Trains. During the peak time up to 9.30am, some 54 passengers who did not have a ticket were fined. This amounts to 20% of customers. A West Midland Trains spokesman said, Our approach to revenue protection is twofold. Investing in ways to make buying tickets as easy as possible and penalising the small minority who deliberately avoid paying their fare. Over the next few years, West Midland Trains will be investing several million pounds in new technology with extra ticket machines, mobile oblique smart card ticketing and simpler online retailing, making buying a ticket even quicker and easier. Technology is also helping us to become more sophisticated when it comes to targeting fare evasion and Monday's joint operation with the police at Worcester Fourgate Street, like many others around our network, was based on intelligence received both from customers and staff. He added, 
We'd like to thank all those with tickets for their patience and cooperation this morning. All customers passing through the station were checked and anybody caught without a ticket faced a penalty fine amounting to either double the ticket fare or £20, whichever was more. And there is a picture of Fourgate Street Station Concourse with people standing around and it's captioned a previous sting in December where Revenue Protection and Security Officers also caught more than 50 ticket dodgers at Fourgate Street Station. And I'm reading a story from Wednesday, February the 7th, Council to Get Tough. Sorry, council, yeah, council to get tough to tackle dog fouling. I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels strongly about this, and I am actually a dog owner, but goodness, it does irritate me when I find people don't clear up after their pets. So, tougher punishments for dog owners who fail to clean up their pet's poo are being considered by Worcester City Council. The council receives numerous complaints every year about dog fouling, with 211 between March 2016 and October 2017. While the Poo Watch web app has received over 4,300 reports of dog fouling since it was launched in November 2015, an average of 181 a month. Dog faeces can carry Toxicara, which can cause illness and blindness. Young children are particularly at risk. Council proposals include the introduction of a public spaces protection order, requiring any person in charge of a dog to immediately remove the animal's faeces. The council could also introduce a number of clearly marked dog exclusion areas around the city and is looking for views on if this would be welcome and if so, where. Any person found by police community support or designated council officers to be in breach of the proposed requirements would be guilty of a criminal offence under the Antisocial Behaviour Crime and Policing Act 2014. They could receive a fixed penalty notice of up to £75 or, if prosecuted via a magistrate's court, could face a maximum payment of £1,000. Councillor Mike Johnson, chair of the City Council's Communities Committee, said... We know that clean streets are one of the top priorities for residents and visitors to Worcester. Although the majority of dog owners are responsible, it is clear that a number still view clearing up after their dog as optional. Adopting the proposed measures would enable the council to take tougher action against offenders and would also give police and other community officers new powers to issue on-the-spot fines. Give your views on the proposals by doing a survey at worcester.gov.uk slash voice it by March the 5th. When I saw this story, I couldn't resist it, and I hope you'll enjoy it too. The headline is Mystery Gnomes Appear Near Pub. The sudden appearance of a mooning garden gnome outside a pub has sparked a mystery invasion of ornaments. When the derriere flashing figure was left outside the old bush in Callow End a month ago, its landlords never believed it would cause a rush of gnomes descending on their pub. In that time, more than 25 gnomes have been placed outside the pub or sent through the post, perplexing owners Matt and Karen Williams. Mr Williams said, The first gnome appeared overnight. I've no idea who put it there. I went out and fetched a couple more gnomes myself, just so that he wasn't on his own. Then, suddenly, all these other gnomes started appearing. 
People were putting gnomes out on the grass, and then we were getting some sent through the post. They're still coming through now. I've honestly got no idea who is sending them or where they're coming from. They're not cheap either. Some people are mad. Gnomes in all shapes and sizes are now sat opposite the pub, with more continuing to fall through the letterbox each week. Mrs Williams said, I love it. I think it's really funny and a great laugh. It's nice to have them all outside. We've asked a lot of people and grilled a few locals, but everyone is staying quiet. They just don't say anything. One came the other day wrapped up in a crisp box. We've had couriers delivering packages. None of them have a sender's address on, so I couldn't even say if they're being sent by locals. They could be coming from anywhere. I'm the chef, so I guess I like the chef one most, said Mrs Williams, although I do like the biker gnome. In fact, we've had a fair few people in our old pub that looked a bit like that. Mr and Mrs Williams reopened the pub in Upton Road three years ago after a successful campaign by villagers to save it from turning into a home. That's lovely. And it's not April 1st, by the way. No, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like saying there'll be no more. Oh, oh dear. I will carry on. Um, My headline is Byron in Further Doubt. A burger chain's plan to open a restaurant at the city's £20 million Cathedral Square Plaza has been plunged into further doubt. We previously reported that accountancy firm KPMG had revealed Byron could close up to 20 restaurants nationally as part of a financial rescue proposal under a company voluntary agreement, CVA, to allow it to continue to trade. A press association report named the planned Worcester outlet as one of the 20 restaurants on the at-risk-of-closure list before it is even opened. During a meeting held yesterday, creditors and landlords gave near overwhelming backing to the rescue plan. Effectively, the announcement paves the way for the potential closure of the 20 restaurants. Simon Cope, chief executive of Byron, said... Our landlords have been both understanding and positive throughout this process and we look forward to working proactively with them in the coming months. He added, as a result of this restructuring process, a number of our restaurants will close and we will do everything possible to redeploy staff to other sites and initiatives. Mr Cope said, a small and more efficient restaurant estate would enable the business to remain sustainable and innovative in the long term. And here's an article from Wednesday the 7th of February. Sanctuary Group Helps Food Bank. And there's a very nice picture of um, Graham Lucas, the Worcester Food Bank manager, with Nicole Seymour, the Group Director of Corporate Services at Sanctuary. And they're at the food bank um, embracing really what looks like a big box of food while holding it. So staff from Worcester-based Sanctuary Group will be making a difference to the lives of local families over the next year through support for Worcester Food Bank. The social housing and care provider, which is based in Castle Street in the city, has chosen the Food Bank as their charity of the year and will be hosting fundraising events and collections throughout 2018. To kickstart the fundraising, Sanctuary is giving £10,000 to the charity from its Community Investment Programme. Inspired by a visit from food bank volunteers, staff will also volunteer at the food bank over the course of the year. Last year, Worcester Food Bank, which opened in June 2012, 
provided more than 6,000 emergency food parcels to support city families for up to three days with over 60,000 meals. Its running costs are 45,000 per year and it currently has a 15,000 pound shortfall of this. Nicole Seymour, Group Director of Corporate Services for Sanctuary Group said, Worcester Food Bank provides a lifeline for many residents across the city. So we're delighted staff have selected the charity for a year of fundraising and volunteering. As well as our staff's efforts, the group's financial support will mean the food bank can continue to help residents who are facing a crisis. Graham Lucas, Worcester Food Bank manager, added, We have a dedicated group of volunteers who work tirelessly to make a difference and Sanctuary's generous investment will only add to their efforts. Nobody in Worcester should have to face going hungry and it is through services like ours that this need can be addressed. Worcester Food Bank is part of a nationwide network supported by the Trussell Trust, working to combat poverty and hunger across the UK. My next story comes from Saturday, February the 3rd, and it's headed City Volunteers Praised, and alongside the text uh, are some rather fetching photographs of just some of those volunteers. More than 200 people from Worcester who have helped make the city a better place to live were honoured at the Guildhall recently. The Mayor and Deputy Mayor of Worcester thanked the volunteers at two special receptions last week. Some of them had helped major events such as last year's Three Choirs Festival and the Worcester Show to run smoothly. Others devoted many hours to litter clearance, tree planting and conservation work in the city's parks and open spaces. Volunteers who regularly help in Worcester schools, colleges and community groups were also out in force. Deputy Mayor of Worcester, Councillor Jabba Riaz, said, I've met with literally hundreds of community groups and attended several major events in Worcester which simply could not function without the support of volunteers. Many volunteers I've met are extremely modest about their achievements and often have a tendency to shy away from the limelight. However, I think it's high time to say thank you and to shout about the enormous difference that they are making both to Worcester the place and the people who live here. Between January 2017 and January 2018, the City Council has recorded nearly 5,000 hours of work which volunteers have contributed to improve Worcester's parks and open spaces. This is about 1,000 hours more than the Council recorded last year, indicating that an increasing number of people are prepared to give up time to help their local community. The Council says that there are thousands of hours more of voluntary contributions made to charities, schools, community groups and major events in 2017. My next article is from Tuesday, February the 6th, and it's headed Students at Care Home for Training. Student paramedics from the University of Worcester have been getting valuable work experience in sanctuary care homes across the county. The 25 students on the university's BSc Honours course are working at a number of sanctuaries' homes, including Beechwood in Upton-upon-Severn. Developing a better understanding of the care sector, the students will spend the whole of their five-week placement at the same home, giving them a true insight into life and work in a care home. Abby Dowden and Harriet Ward, who are both from Wales, are now halfway through their placement at Beechwood. Abby, aged 23, said, I have had experience in a care home previously 
and it has been so nice to work in a smaller care home. It's more intimate and I'm really enjoying getting to know the residents. Harriet, 22, said, I have never worked in a care home before, so I was quite shy coming into the placement, but it has already really helped my confidence. It's taught me how to interact with the residents on a one-to-one -one basis and how to support them in a way they're comfortable with. Beechwood resident Margaret Brooks, aged 84, said Abby and Harriet had been great. Both of the girls are lovely and more than happy to help. She said, it's nice that they get to come work with us as part of their university course. Neil Quinn of Sanctuary said, we are once again really proud to welcome the University of Worcester's aspiring paramedics following the first successful group of students before Christmas. The feedback from our teams has again been really encouraging and our residents are enjoying the students' company and support. Uh, the, story, uh, the headline for this story is Punish Drivers Who Go One Mile Per Hour Over the Limit. Hmm. Drivers should be punished for going just one mile per hour over the speed limit, according to West Mercia Police, Police's Chief Constable. Chief Constable Anthony Bangham, the National Police Chief's Council lead on road policing, has made national headlines after reportedly saying there should be an end to the 10% buffer over the limit. According to the Daily Mail, the West Mercia Chief also said in a speech at the Police Federation Roads Policing Conference on Tuesday that speeding awareness courses were being used too widely instead of penalty points and fines, and drivers caught speeding should, quote, not come whinging to us about it. In the speech, the police chief reportedly said, let's change the message. We are proud to be law enforcers. I do not want the public to be surprised. I want them to be embarrassed when they get caught. They need to understand the law is set at the limit for a reason. They should not come whinging to us about getting caught. If booked at 35 or 34 or 33 in a 30 mile per hour zone, that cannot be unfair because they are breaking the law. Current guidance suggests police forces should only issue penalties for drivers caught at 10% plus 2 miles per hour over the limit, 35 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour zone, for example. Tory MP Sir Greg Knight warned against an overly aggressive policy against drivers, telling the paper, it will make criminals of motorists who are basically good drivers trying to obey the speed limit while keeping an eye on the road. A total of 1,710 people were killed on the roads in the year up to June 2017, according to the latest statistics. Last year, figures obtained by the Press Association found 18 of 26, that's 69%, fixed speed cameras in West Mercia were turned off. However, a spokesman for the Force's Safer Roads Partnership said this was not true, adding in fact 19 cameras were removed across 27 sites. My next story is headlined, King Comes to Palace 40 Years After Tragic Death. The Elvis Years is set to take the Palace Theatre in Redditch by storm 40 years after the tragic death of the King of Rock and Roll. 
The show on February 16th is part of a nationwide 10-year anniversary tour hitting the West End later this year. With 2018 marking 40 years since Elvis Presley passed away, the Elvis years continues to wow crowds in tribute to the King of Rock and Roll. The Elvis Years is a concert production telling the story of Elvis through the years. The show features Mario Kombu, original lead of Jailhouse Rock in the West End, and his incredible band, and is led by legendary producer, musical director and Ivor Novello award winner David Mackay. With a world-class cast, authentic costumes and rare film footage, The Elvis Years features more than 50 of the King's greatest hits, including Hound Dog, It's Now or Never, Just Can't Help Believing, That's Alright Mama, The Wonder of You, Suspicious Minds, American Trilogy and many more, as well as lesser-known tracks such as Rockahoola Baby and Bossa Nova Baby. Actor and singer Mario Kombu has been performing as Elvis for more than 20 years now, he said, I cannot believe how much the show has grown in these last 10 years, from the days of Jailhouse Rock to the early days of creating this incredible production, and now to performing at sold-out shows in some of the best venues in the country. I'm blown away by the public support for the Elvis years and feel sure that we can make 2018 a truly special anniversary year for our fans. My next story is new product will create jobs. 100 new jobs will be created after Worcester-based technology firm GTEC announced plans to manufacture a new product in the county. Details have not been released on the new product, but the firm's owner Nick Gray said work will start from 2019. The manufacturer which makes vacuum cleaners, lightweight bikes, power tools and other appliances, has its headquarters at the Shire Business Park in Warnden. Mr Gray said, One piece of feedback I get repeatedly from the British public is, Nick, why don't you manufacture your products here? So we've designed the product to be manufactured here in the UK. Currently, GTEC products are built in China and transported to the UK in shipping containers which are unloaded into a warehouse. They are then individually picked and delivered to consumers. Instead, the new product will be built on the day of dispatch and collected from the end of the line by the courier. Consumers visiting GTEC shop will also have the option to collect their products directly from the line, saving packaging. This year, GTEC is planning to continue an international expansion into eight new territories in Asia, the Middle East and Europe. The announcement has been made at the same time as GTEC's latest product, the GTEC Pro, a new cordless vacuum cleaner featuring a bag has gone on sale. The product features a triple layer bag with Mr Gray explaining that while some vacuum manufacturers emphasise the virtues of complicated cyclonic vacuum cleaners, the bag won't go away, as customers have stayed loyal to it. The Sunday Times has previously named GTEC as one of Britain's fastest growing companies, based on three years' worth of profit. Uh, this is a story about a park run locally. <clears throat> park run proves big pull. Families braved the damp conditions during a weekly run, which has forged a place in the hearts of runners of all ages and abilities. 
Runners jumped over puddles and skidded through the mud for Worcester Pitchcroft Park Run on a soggy Saturday. Set up 34 weeks ago, the free 5k run begins at 9am every Saturday and continues to grow in popularity. There were around 250 runners on Saturday, despite the drizzle. Sarah Payne, aged 21, of Barbourne, Worcester, helped start up the Pitchcroft Park Run, but said its success was down to a team of volunteers who helped the run free. He also said the support... Sorry, I I said Sarah Payne and it's Sam Payne. I do apologise. He also said the support of Worcester City Council and Arena, which runs the race course, had been a great help. The youngest a runner can register is four years old, but younger children come along for the ride in pushchairs. The oldest participant on Saturday was 87. Hmm. Time for me yet. Mr Payne said, it's not about how fast you run at all. It can be whatever you want it to be. We absolutely love it when families come down and participate together. It's growing massively. We've been blown away. To get 250 people on a rainy February day is phenomenal. There is a personal best bell at the finish line. People can meet for coffee and cake at the pump house afterwards. The fastest time on Saturday was recorded by Neil Lawrenson. And one of the reasons I wanted to read the story was that it's accompanied by some marvellous pictures of all these people running in the mud. And one particular runner who took part in um, costume as a First World War Belgian soldier. I should think that was quite heavy to run in, especially in the rain. But it looks like a, a good fun event and local to me. Over to you, Phil. Thank you. My story is headed Centre Car Park, Blaze. Three cars were engulfed in flame during an unexplained fire on the roof of a shopping centre car park. Black smoke could be seen rising from the roof of Crowngate Shopping Centre's multi-storey car park in Worcester on Saturday afternoon. The shopping centre was evacuated as firefighters tackled the blaze. One woman described how she became separated from her daughter in the confusion as crowds fled the scene. The fire engulfed three cars, the worst damage being to a green Ford Fiesta Zetec, where the fire started. A dark green Mini and a white BMW parked either side of the Fiesta were also damaged as the fire spread. The fire caused extensive damage to the interior of the Fiesta, so hot that it melted the steering wheel and dashboard. The flames had also damaged the engine compartment and the bonnet was raised. A young woman was seen crying near the damaged cars and is believed to be the owner of one of the vehicles. Two officers from West Mercia Police were present at the scene, offering comfort, support and advice to the woman and talking to Crowngate staff. When a reporter arrived, shopping centre management were discussing the logistics of getting a recovery truck to the top floor with two metre height restriction in place. Leanne New, writing on the Worcester News Facebook page, said, It was two to three cars on fire. We were on top floor and I got separated from my eight-year-old in the evacuation process, but I cannot fault the speed and care the fire brigade showed in helping me to find her. It was the longest 40 minutes ever. A spokesman for the Hereford and Worcester Fire and Rescue Service said they received a call at 1.51pm to, quote, a serious car fire on the roof of a multi-storey car park. Matt Maslin of Northwick, Worcester said, I was parked on the sixth floor and I was coming into Crowngate when I heard the alarms going off and I saw people rushing out, quite a lot of people. The shutters were all going down and I thought I'd better walk back out. I could see the smoke coming from the car park and it crossed my mind that it could be my my car on fire. 
Three crews from Worcester attended. The fire is not believed to have been started deliberately. Now a story with international kindness in view. Old football boots plea. A former city footballer is appealing for old boots to help kit out a team he coached in Uganda. Winston Bailey, who played for Worcester City and made an FA Cup appearance for Malvern Town in the early 1980s, was visiting his partner Emma as she worked at a hospital in Gulu, Uganda. Wanting to help out during his month-long stay, Mr Bailey decided to organise football skill schools for teenagers at a local juvenile remand home. Having spent time perfectly dribbling and passing with a group of children aged between 13 and 17, he organised a match against local team area code. With most of the players five and six years older than Mr Bailey's remand team, Area Code eventually ran out comfortable 11-1 winners. We got beat quite heavily, but the boys enjoyed it and saw the level they needed to get to, he said. Our lads had to play in bare feet, whereas the other team were completely kitted out. They suffered a fair few kicks on the ankle. That is what gave me the idea to try and get them some kit. I thought if we can get them some boots, they can start playing more games. And if they want to join a football team when they go back into the community, they'll already be prepared if they have a pair of boots. Mr Bailey said the entire stay in Uganda was a fantastic experience and he's now focused on supplying the team with boots. The lads would be grateful for anything that could be provided for them. It was great to see them enjoying football and forgetting about the reasons why they are in the home for an hour or two. I purposely didn't ask why any of the children were in the home. I just wanted to teach them and they could have a clean slate with me. Yes, they have done bad things, but I think everybody deserves a second chance. We had quite a few Arsenal fans, which didn't go down well because I'm a Manchester United fan and some of the lads laughed at how I pronounced things. We had a bit of a party on the final day. The lads got some fresh fruit, which I don't think they usually get much of, and some pop and sweets. I really enjoyed my time with them and was very sad to leave. If you would like to donate football boots, contact Winston at W1NNAH3MM4 at gmail. Dot com. And the article is illustrated by a picture of Winston Bailey in Gulu, Uganda, teaching football skills to a group of teenagers at the local home for juveniles in remand. This headline goes, we need a drunk tank here. Hmm. A drunk tank should be set up in Worcester, the head of the city's street pastors says. Peter Wood, 43, said a unit where intoxicated people could receive care would serve as a safe place for revellers and those suffering from addiction issues. The NHS recently announced it will make a decision on whether to roll out drunk tanks across the country this year as part of a bid to reduce pressure on hospitals. Mr Wood, area coordinator for Worcester Street Pastors, wants to test out the scheme by starting off with one mobile drunk tank in the city centre. He said, I think one would be a good start, 
a warm, friendly environment with trained people on call to help. It needs to be a decent size. I think it would be extremely useful. For several years, we've been talking about having some form of safe place, a drunk tank. Mr Wood of Sansom Walk, Worcester, said the unit could be fitted with a stretcher and cater for people who are either intoxicated or suffering from serious alcohol or substance problems. He added that multi-agency staff and volunteers would be able to refer addicts to relevant services from the unit. Worcester City Councillor Mike Johnson, a former director for the Old Hereford Hospital's NHS Trust, supported the idea. A happy soul that's drunk needs a calming environment so they're not wandering the streets creating mayhem, he said. He added that the measure might also help to prevent intoxicated people who do not need medical care from unnecessarily attending A&E. Superintendent Kevin Purcell, police commander of South Worcestershire, said, I've heard that other areas around the country have been trialling drunk tanks and I'm very interested to see the outcome of these trials. If in the future it looks like Worcester could benefit from drunk tanks being installed, I will begin talks with our partner agencies. Worcester Street Pastors currently has 20 volunteers and patrols the city centre every Saturday night. The group hopes to set up a recovery centre in the city, such as Amelia's Place in Hereford, in the near future. I've taken this story from Tuesday's regional news section, that's Tuesday the 6th, and the headline reads, Florist Joe is voted the best in Britain. It begins, flower power was all the rage long before farmer's daughter Joe Williams was born, yet the 39-year-old has given a new meaning to the catchphrase with a starry success in the floristry business. In less than three years, the bubbly entrepreneur has put her homegrown business, Issy and Bella, at the top of the game. Firmly dedicated to her job, Joe was busily swathing Hereford Cathedral in flowers for a forthcoming memorial service when she was voted best in Britain at a glittering presentation night at the Café de Paris in London. She has also become a chapel designer, that's capital C and capital D, an exclusive international collective of wedding and event floral designers. She said that she felt that she hadn't a cat in hell's chance of winning the top award and when news came through that she'd scooped the Wedding Industry Awards National Prize, she was home in bed. Alerted by a tweet on her mobile phone, she checked the results. I thought, that's me, she said. She dashed to tell her parents, Gwyn and Joyce. Mum's legs had gone to jelly. Dad was slapping the back of the sofa. We were in massive shock. Jo has a knack for knowing what her clients need, and her passion for natural styles is clearly a winner. I like to bring nature in, she says. She gathers all sorts of additions, twigs, feathers, seed heads, and delights in adding fragrance with flowers such as scented geraniums, roses, and even mint. Meanwhile, a constant supply of flowers come from relatives' gardens. She said, I like a free-flowing style, and if a flower has a kink, that's how it goes in. If nature wants it to have a wonky stem, then that's the way it is. For the future, Jo, a trained teacher, aims to keep growing and while expanding her flower school. In fact, everything in the Issy and Bella garden is rosy. My next story is from Monday the 5th of February and is headed Train Under the Rails. Now there will be no excuse. The owner of a personal training studio in Worcester is hoping to open another such gym right in the centre of the city 
so that people who work there can fit exercise into their day more easily. And if his plans go ahead, they'll be pumping iron under the steel rails of the railway viaduct heading into Fourgate Street Station. John Clark wants to turn an empty railway arch unit into a private gym and fitness clinic for one-to-one -one training and very small groups. Mr Clark already runs the Fit 360 gym near Shrub Hill Station, but he says many people find it hard to fit a visit into a busy day. It's difficult for people who work in the city centre because they get caught in traffic or they want to get on the road quickly. I want to open up an additional facility right in the city centre, which will give people the opportunity to book a session before they start work, or in their lunch hour, or right after work, and it'll be much easier to get here. The archway won't be a high uptake commercial gym, but rather a small space where customers will book sessions to work with a personal trainer. Mr Clark added, most of our training will be weight-based. It's a very popular way of exercising. It will be the sort of thing we do now in Shrub Hill. I'm looking to employ two more personal trainers. I've already got one signed up and customers will be able to book either a personal session of train in small groups of four or five. The unit under the viaduct in Netherton Walk Infirmary Street has been vacant for 18 months despite having been advertised for rent. It has two reserved parking spaces in a neighbouring arch. Mr Clark said permission for his plan would contribute to the upgrading of Worcester's railway arches in order to both protect them as part of Worcester's heritage and change a vacant unit into a thriving business. The plans are available to view on the City Council's website using reference P18D0019 and any comments on the proposal should be made to Worcester City Council by February the 16th. Well, we're going to finish the news section with um, a very apposite story, I think. Show some love this Valentine's Day. Starford and Evesham Opticians are proving their all-heart this coming Valentine's Day as the team raises funds for charity. The team at Specsavers in Bridge Street are embracing the message behind Valentine's Day by giving their love to the British Heart Foundation. From now until Valentine's Day, staff are encouraging visitors to share their feelings for a loved one by writing a message on a paper heart which will be displayed in the store window. Hearts are available in store in return for a charity donation. On the day itself, staff will take on a, ra sorry, a rosy glow by wearing red, while visitors can enjoy a range of baked treats in return for donations, courtesy of the store's own bake sale. Right, well, I think that's where we're off on the 14th. So that's the general news um, items finished, and we're now moving on to sport. And if Phil could kick us off... Oh. The pun. Oh, yes. <laughs> and quite an inapposite one as we're starting with basketball. <laughs> Sorry, Pippa, That's wrong okay. sport. Um, the headline here is James, no time to sulk after final loss. Head coach Paul James insists that his players have, quote, no time to sulk, as Worcester Wolves get set for a hectic run of fixtures in February. 
Wolves have been left to lick their wounds after going down 99-88 to Cheshire Phoenix in the BBL Cup final in the Arena Birmingham last Sunday. But Worcester now face five games in nine days, starting with a home clash against British Basketball League leaders Leicester Riders tomorrow at 7.30pm. They will then take on bottom club Leeds Force before tackling Sheffield Sharks over two legs in the semi-final of the trophy, either side of a league game against fourth-place London Lions. Sounds hectic, doesn't it? James said it was a crucial period as Wolves looked to climb the table from seventh position and reach their second final of the season. There's no time for sulking, we've just got to get back on it, James said. We've got Leicester and Leeds in a double header, then we go to two semi-final games in London. In a way, that's a great thing, as it means we've been doing pretty well in all competitions, but it does mean that games are going to start getting backed up, and February is going to be a crucial month for us. Wolves had won 12 of their past 13 matches before losing to an inspired Cheshire side who proved too strong in the second half. James said his team did not do themselves justice, but revealed he held a meeting with his players on Tuesday morning to clear the air and go over what they did wrong in the final. We were all very disappointed with the result, he said. I just think overall Cheshire played very well. They stepped up and did over and beyond what they've been doing all season. Sometimes that happens as form goes out of the window in a final and it's about whoever shows up on the day. Our supporters came out in their droves, which was fantastic to see. So we were unhappy that we didn't play the way that we have been playing of late. We just chose the wrong game to have an off day, but it's only one game. There is still plenty to play for and still lots of games to come. It wasn't our time, but we have an opportunity now to get back to another final and hopefully we will have learnt our lesson. It should make us more resilient and stronger for the rest of the season. My sports story is more to do with football stadium planning than it is to do with the game itself. It's headed, Worcester City tweaked plans at next consultation. Alterations to the position of the ground, the perimeter of the site and more parking spaces are among the proposed changes to Worcester City's Parsonage Way Stadium plan. Club officials met with project partners from the Worcestershire FA and Worcester City Council officers last month with a topographic survey, an assessment of the makeup of the surface and ground directly underneath the plot, top of the agenda. Preparing for the ground to create a surface fit for football was described as the biggest unknown by City Chairman Anthony Hampson last month. But fellow director Kevin Priest reported results over had been much better than anticipated with adjustments made to help the club overcome any complications. On Tuesday, the club announced it had sought pre-planning application advice from the council, the authority that also owns the ground. The submission is designed to give City in-principle feedback and ensure all required assessments are in hand prior to making a formal planning application, which Hampson has targeted having in by June. Priest confirmed the revised plans would go on display at the final public consultation scheduled to take place either this month or March. The outline of the site is in the process of being changed, making it slightly smaller on one side, said Priest. That is to do with area near to the electricity pylons. 
There is very little anyone can do with that, so the outline of the whole site has come in a bit. We are planning for the car parking capacity to be increased in the final phase and the position of the stadium is going to be moved slightly following feedback from the topographic survey. From what was said around the table, the survey came back with much better results than they had expected. There will be another public consultation before the planning application goes in. We hope that will take place in February when we get a lot closer to what will be put forward for planning, but it may be at the start of March, dependent on progress. We want everyone to be aware that the next public meeting is very much a part of the process. As part of the pre-planning submission, the club's architects have written to Worcester City Council to ask whether an Environmental Impact Assessment, EIA, is required with regard to waste pollution, use of natural resources and the size of the development. Only developments which may have a significant environmental effect require an EIA to be produced. I have a couple of golf stories, local ones, um, which is quite different, I think. So one revolves around the Worcestershire in Morven Wells and the other uh, locally at Worcester Raven, Worcester's Raven Meadow and Purdeswell Park. A birdie at the last hole gave Paul and Diane Meakin victory at the Worcestershire in Malvern Wells. Stephen Goody, returning from injury, and wife Christine continued their good run with third place on 39 Stablefoot points in the mixed greensums. Peter Hill and Liz Poole were again in contention for top spot with 40, but lost on countback to the Meakins. They returned nine pars and two birdies, including one at the last, finishing with 22 on the back nine, to take their, ver their first victory this winter. And in Worcester, Adrian Tinker and Joe Jackson were crowned the gruesome pairs Stableford winners. I don't think it's anything to do with the picture, but there is a picture of the two of them. <laughs> and it was a close call at Worcester's Raven Meadow and Purdeswell Park. The duo, playing off a team handicap of 16, scored 30 points to edge out Jeff Jones and Mick Huggins and Martin Hucker and Tom Gregory on countback. Stephen Bayliss and Barry Hope were fourth on 28 after finishing tied with husband and wife pairing Mike and Val Williams. The frustrating nature of the format combined with cold and windy conditions made for low scoring. And now some cricket for you, a roundup of some of the uh, things that have been going on recently. The headline reads, County Shrug Off Mini Flood. Worcestershire head groundsman Tim Packwood says preparations for the new season have been unaffected by the mini flood which came across Blackfrinch New Road. The long-serving Packwood confirmed that only clear, silt-free ditch water came onto the ground and it will have no negative impact on the two and a half wickets covered via the flood earmarked for county championship cricket in the latter part of the season. Packwood and his staff have already been working on the outfield and cutting the square since the waters subsided early a week yesterday. It is now full speed ahead for the opening home match against Nottinghamshire from April 27th to 30th. And speaking personally, I cannot wait. Charlie Morris has returned after a second successive winter playing grade cricket in Australia. The county paceman went back to Tuguranong Valley, yes that is Tuguranong Valley, who he helped to complete a one-day and two-day cup double in 2016-17. to 17. 
Morris aided them in enjoying further success in the McDonald's ACT Premier Cricket First Grade. He was part of the side that reached the semi-finals of the one-day Gallup Cup after finishing third in the group stages. But Western Creek Molonglo gained revenge for losing both finals to Tugurangong 12 months earlier. George Rhodes is continuing his good form for Onslow, but his New Zealand side are so far struggling to repeat their 50-over form in the two-day Pierce Cup competition. The Worcestershire all-rounder played a major role in Onslow, lifting the Ewan Chatfield Trophy with victory over Johnsonville in the final. Rhodes has also impressed in the longer format, with Onslow hanging on for a draw in the clash with Hutt and coming off second best on day one of the encounter with Eastern Suburbs. Rhodes returned 4 for 38 and then 3 for 41 as Hutt were bowled out for 154 and 112. He also top scored in both innings for Onslow with 29 out of 112 and then 34 as they ended the game on 120 for 9. And an article about a game with a much smaller ball table tennis. Ben wins county school's table tennis trophy. Worcester's Ben Fellows enjoyed success at the Butterfly Worcestershire School's Junior Individual Table Tennis Championships. The under-11s boys section drew 17 players and Alex Setchell of Meadow Green Primary, Withal, won the first semi-final 3-2 against Alvy Saunders of Blackminster Middle, Evesham. Fellows of Royal Grammar School, Worcester, enjoyed a 3-0 win over David Morrish of Burlish Park Primary, Starport. Saunders beat Morrish 3-0 in the third-place playoff. Setchell led 2-1 in the final and went ahead in the fourth game only for Fellows to claw back and tie the match. Fellows, the beaten finalist last year, this time clinched the decider 11-8 to triumph 3-2. Blackminster pupil Anna Cole was player of the tournament as she went undefeated to win the under-13s girls round-robin competition involving five players from Evesham. Breeden Hills Academy's Sophie Arundale was second and her sister Rebecca third. Bella Reed from tournament hosts St Edwin's Middle, Evesham, won a trophy for good sportsmanship. Blackminster's Johnny Blakely won all his matches 3-0 in the boys' section, with Harry Hawkins Pitts second and Ollie Dishart third. The under-11s girls' section drew seven from Blackminster Littleton and St Edwin's. In the final, Tallulah Brown was overpowered by Anna Blakely, who emulated her older brother to win all her matches 3-0. Lara Hodgkins beat Pippa Thomas 3-0 in the third-place playoff. John McKay from Worcestershire School's Table Tennis Association presented the tri- trophies. A uh, story now about athletics, which I know is a more of a summer event. And this is Droitwich Athletics Club will host their annual half marathon in the spa town on Sunday, March the 4th. The event is open to all runners aged over 17 who are up for challenging 13.1 miles around the countryside surrounding Spa. The scenic undulating road race takes competitors around the quiet country lanes of Salwarp, Ladywood, Hadley, Porters Mill and Fernal Heath. It finishes at Droitwich Spa High School's athletics track. Plenty of parking, 
changing facilities and refreshments are available courtesy of the sponsors. Rivers Leisure, among those backing the event, will provide goodie bags and facilities for all competitors on the day. All finishers will also receive a medal and training tech shirt. Race director Martin Smith said, The club is proud to host this annual event. We attract runners from all over neighbouring counties and the popularity for this event is growing, especially as many schedule our event into their training calendars for various marathons, mainly due to its timing in the racing calendar for London or Manchester. Limited spaces are available and entries will be closing on Tuesday, February the 28th. For more details and online entry, visit the website at droitwichac.co.uk. And that's all we've got time for, I think, for the sport. So I will now ask Phil to lead off with some of our selections for radio programmes that are from the Radio Times uh, for the forthcoming week. And we're starting with Saturday the... I think it will be the 10th. Yes, it will be the 10th. Yeah, Saturday right. the 10th. Yes. Well, well, my attention was grabbed by this. It's a programme on Radio 4 at 8 o'clock on Saturday. Um, it's called A Brief History of Cunning. And this is what the uh, radio editor has to say about it. Canny, crafty, devious, deft, smart, sly. All synonyms for cunning. But perhaps the most Machiavellian sleight of hand played in this hour-long delight is by presenter Joe Queenan, for this is really a subtle, insidious assessment of Donald Trump's presidency, despite the illuminating reference to other well-known masters of guile, from Odysseus to Tony Blair. Trump is, in Queenan's considered opinion, the ultimate trickster, hiding in plain sight, using his enormous self-belief to bind not just the US, but the entire world with his unique brand of, in inverted commas, openness, as viewers would have witnessed in the recent ITV interview with Piers Morgan. This programme is both highly amusing and terrifying. How very cunning. I have two programmes from Sunday the 11th of February. The first one is Choral Evensong, and it attracted my attention because it's an archive broadcast from St George's Chapel, Windsor, from 1988. It includes an introit by Elgar um, and also the anthem I Was Glad by, set by Parry, ever popular piece, and particularly that the director of music there is Christopher Robinson, who of course was organist at our own Worcester Cathedral for a number of years. And then the second programme on that same day is Desert Island Discs, which is on at 11.15am on Radio 4. And it just sounds intriguing. At the time of writing, a disaster had fallen, had befallen double bass player Chichi Nwanoku of a kind that musicians must all dread. She'd lost her precious bow by leaving it on a tube train. Nwanoku is the founder of Chineke, the first professional orchestra in Europe to be made up of majority black and minority ethnic musicians, and she has a great life story to tell Kirsty Young, with her choices embracing both classical and non-classical. She is of part Nigerian heritage, 
and Chineke, which comes from the Igbo language, was her choice of name. The word translates roughly as the spirit of creation. I've got a couple of suggestions for Monday the 12th of February. And the first one is current, very current really. It's on Radio 4 at 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. And it's, headline, it's called A Korean Thaw? Question mark. And with tensions between North and South Korea at an apparent all-time high, observers were stunned last month when it was announced that both countries had agreed to march together under a single flag at the Winter Olympics in the South. Could the threat of war be receding? Jean Lee, one of the few foreign journalists to have been allowed to live and work in North Korea, reports. I think that could be very interesting. And in case it has um, not come across your radar, of course, we will be, we will have already started the Winter Olympics and there is live coverage on BBC Radio 5 Live. One of the things that they're going to be doing is the um, ice hockey preliminary round matches. There's one at 7.35 in the morning on BBC Radio 5 Live, Finland v the United States and again in the evening. Um, and then the other programme I thought sounded really... Well, if you've read the book The Girl on the Train, um, Oscar nominee Sally Hawkins stars in Paula Hawkins' 2015 thriller in which commuter Rachel daydreams about the loving couple she watches every day from her train window. And this book has been abridged by Neville Teller and it's at 2.30 in the afternoon on BBC Radio 4, Radio 4 Extra. That's on Sunday the 11th. Starts on the 11th. Right, we're into Monday now. One of my favourite programmes, and you may know it, but if you don't, you might like to give it a go, is called the Museum of Curiosity. It's chaired by John Lloyd, who produced Blackadder, and he calls his co-curator Sally Phillips um, to invite people to make imaginary donations to an imaginary museum. And they're often uh, very amusing and highly informative. This week, Jack Carroll, hostage negotiator Suzanne Williams, and author and adventurer Robert Twigger uh, are asked to donate exhibits to their imaginary museum. They contemplate how someone changed history by choosing her bus seat carefully in 1955, what life might be like if people paid each other more attention, and why all of life might actually be a simulation in a future game of football manager. And my contribution is for Wednesday, the 14th of February, and of course, as it's Valentine's Day, music for the heart. Eight o'clock on Classic FM, the Full Works concert, Jane Jones celebrates Valentine's Day with a programme that's fiery, tender, melancholic and poetic. The 24 variations that make up Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini encompass a host of emotions, while Schumann's fantasy pieces for clarinet and piano evoke both sadness and passion. The centrepiece, Mahler's Symphony No. 5, includes a serenely beautiful adagietto, a radiant love gift to his wife-to-be, Alma. It's played here by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Simon Rattle. And on uh, Wednesday, February the 14th, um, I wonder why, but there is a programme on BBC Radio 4 at 9pm, The Age of Emotion. 
The psychotherapist Philippa Perry explores whether we are now in a new age of emotion. She visits the country's first so-called positive psychology university in Buckingham, which is introducing mindfulness classes and asks whether getting young people more in touch with their emotions is helping or hindering them in dealing with the challenges of life with contributions from journalist Julia Ryside and historian Tiffany Watt-Smith. Right, now, um, crowd science is called 8.30pm on Friday. Um, don't be alarmed by the opening to this. It says, are you a lunatic? Do go a bit doolally around the time of the full moon. You're not alone. That's a comfort. Research has shown a higher incidence of reported crimes on the day of a full moon. But is this, is this coincidence or correlation? Listener Andreas has asked for some illumination on the effects of the moon on the Earth. So presenter Marnie Chesterton calls upon a pool of scientists to separate the moonshine from the right stuff. Most people know that the moon's gravitational pull controls the tides, but how many are aware that some worms have synchronised their mating rhythm to the lunar calendar? Not me, certainly. And amid all that crime happening under a full moon, it also appears that the silvery orb could cause cows to give birth prematurely. Total lunacy. That's 8.30 on Friday. We're now going to um, read through the obituaries. And we've decided that with only the three readers, and there are quite a few to read out, that we're all going to do some to save our voices. So uh, continuing in this sort of clockwise direction, I'll ask Phil to begin. Thank you, Bill. Nancy Bennett sadly passed away January 14th, 2018, aged 93. The funeral service will take place on Monday, February the 12th at Worcester Crematorium at quarter past three. Donations, if desired, in aid of Acorns Children's Hospice and the Alzheimer's Society. Mary Helena Douglas, 6th of December 1946, the 15th of January 2018, who passed away following a spirited battle against cancer. The funeral will take place at St Gabriel's Church, Hanley Swan, Worcestershire, on Wednesday the 7th of February at 2pm. It has been kindly requested that donations to St Richard's Hospice or the RNLI be made in place of flowers. Colin Fenn died suddenly on January 20th, 2018, in his 91st year. The funeral service will take place on Wednesday, February the 7th in Great Malvern Cemetery Chapel at 12 noon. David Harlock died peacefully in Spain on January the 30th, 2018, after a short but serious illness. Thomas Victor Healy passed away peacefully on January the 18th, aged 89. Funeral service will be on Wednesday, February the 21st at Worcester Crematorium at 1pm. Family flowers only, please, with donations to Midlands Air Ambulance. Dr Michael Lloyd Roach passed away at Worcester Royal Hospital, surrounded by his two sons on January the 14th, 2018. Funeral to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, February the 16th at 1pm. Family flowers only, please. Donations, if desired, can be made to the Stroke Association and Alzheimer's Society. Harry Lockley. Harry passed away peacefully on January the 15th, 2018, aged 85. A funeral service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, February the 9th at 10am. Family flowers only, please. 
Donations, if desired, may be made in memory of Harry to St. Richard's Hospice. Avis Irene Austin of Beverly, Worcester, passed away suddenly aged 84 on 20th of January 2018. A funeral service will take place at St. John Baptist Church, Clains, at 11.15am on Monday, February the 26th. It will be followed by a private cremation at Worcester Crematorium. Family flowers only, please. Donations for Dementia UK. Maggie Howe passed away peacefully on January the 14th, 2018, aged 70 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, February the 12th at 10.45am. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for St Richard's Hospice. Helen Sandra, known as Sandra or San Ryland, aged 69, sadly passed away on January the 19th, 2018. The funeral service to be held at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, February the 12th, 2018 at 9.15am. Flowers welcome, however, donations if desired to St Richard's Hospice. Lionel Edward Tyso, sadly passed away on January the 14th, 2018, aged 100 years. The funeral service will take place on Thursday, February the 8th, 2018 at Worcester Crematorium at 10.45am. Family flowers only, however donations if desired in aid of the Midlands Air Ambulance. Julie Sandra Fox. The family announced that Julie tragically passed away on December the 27th, 2017, aged 51 years. The funeral service will take place on Thursday, February the 15th at Worcester Crematorium at 10.45am. Constance Vera, or Connie Hardman, passed away peacefully at St Stephen's Care Home on the 22nd of January 2018, aged 102 years. Service at Worcester <coughs> Crematorium on Friday the 16th of February at 10am. Clothes of colour would be preferred. Family flowers only, donations for Acorns Trust and St Richard's Hospice and Audrey Doreen Wadley died peacefully at Gloucester Hospital on Monday January the 29th 2018 service at St Gregory Church Castle Morton on Thursday February the 8th at 3pm close family and friends flowers donations to Diabetic Association Annette known as Nettie Wade, passed away peacefully on January the 25th, aged 67, with her family by her side. Funeral service at Little Combaton Church on Tuesday, February the 20th, at 1pm, followed by private cremation. Family flowers only, donations for St Richard's Hospice, may be sent to E. Hill and Son, funeral directors, Pershaw W10, WR10 1HZ. Ros Cowley Nay Harris of Bishampton peacefully at Stonebow House Care Home on Friday, January the 12th, aged 91. 
funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, February the 13th at 12.15pm. Family flowers only. Donations, if desired, for St Richard's Hospice may be sent to E. Hill and Son, funeral directors, Pershaw. Paul Fleetwood Hatt of Munderfield Bromyard passed away at St Michael's Hospice on January the 21st, aged 59 years. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, February the 15th at 1.45pm. Family flowers only, please. Donations if desired for St Michael's Hospice and the Herefordshire and Gloucestershire Canal Trust may be sent to Emma Booston Funeral Services, 50 High Street, Bromyard, HR 7 4AE. Brian Hawkswell passed away suddenly with his family by his side on January the 12th, aged 58 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, February the 8th at 12.15pm. Family flowers only, please, but donations if desired for the Stroke Association may be left on the collection plate at the crematorium or sent to E.J. Gummery and Son, 6870 Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR3 70U. Maureen Barbara Adams passed away peacefully on January the 28th, aged 82 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, February the 15th at 3.15pm. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for the Acorns Children's Hospice Trust may be left at the service or sent to Bedwardine Funeral Services. Bertram Gareth Blake Burt of Highbridge, formerly of Worcester, Fernal Heath Football Club and Metal Castings, passed peacefully away in Western Hospital on January the 19th, aged 92 years. Funeral service to be held on Friday, February the 9th in the Chapel of Sedgemoor Crematorium at 10am. Family flowers only, please. Donations, if desired, for the Friends of Burnham Hospital may be sent to Burnham Funeral Services, Burnham-on-Sea. Patricia Pat Bowen passed away suddenly but peacefully on January the 22nd, aged 79. Funeral at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, February the 14th at 2.30pm. Family flowers only, but donations if desired for the British Heart Foundation, care of Bedwardine Funeral Services. Graham Mason, Maz, passed away peacefully on January the 21st, aged 80. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, February the 16th at 12.15pm. Family flowers only, please, but donations if desired for the Midlands Air Ambulance Charity may be left at the crematorium or sent care of Bedwardine Funeral Services, Bromyard Road, St John's, Worcester. Brian Poyner, dearly loved son of Mabel, and Kenneth passed away suddenly. He will be sadly missed by all family and friends. Funeral service to be held at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, March the 9th at 3.15pm. Family flowers only, please. Donations, if desired, for Help the Heroes will be collected at the crematorium. Everyone welcome. Jean Teague. Sadly passed away peacefully. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on February the 19th at 3.15pm. 
flowers from close family only, donations to Midlands Air Ambulance. John Lawrence Charles Whitwell passed away peacefully in St Richard's Hospice, January the 15th, aged 81. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, February the 13th at 2.30pm. Family flowers only, donations in memory of John to St Richard's Hospice. So that concludes the obituaries. Um, And we will now move on to thought for the day. And the thought for the day is John 1, 29 to 30. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And I believe we have a birthday for this week. So, Evelyn, if you'd like to do the honours and read out who our birthday person is, that would be wonderful. Yes, just the one birthday this week on the 12th of February, and it's Hilda Guise. And we all send you our best wishes, Hilda, for a lovely day on the 12th. Happy birthday, Hilda. Happy birthday. So that concludes the um, readings for this week. And before we sign well we will sign off I'd like first of all to thank tonight's reading and production team for what I hope was an excellent job um, thank you to Duncan Wynn in the I don't know what you call that the production room didn't hear that well he can fill that bit in uh, so it's a goodbye from Duncan the recording engineer and the team members good night good night and goodbye from me um, I did think that I should leave you with a final thought because, as was mentioned earlier on, there's a special day coming up next week on the 14th and I found this little bit of doggerel which I thought I would share with you which was obviously from quite some time ago. So it goes like this. Oh, I know something I won't tell. Someone loves you awfully well. If you will be my valentine, all my secrets shall be thine. I'll share my pennies all with you, give you half my ice cream too. Give all the world if it were mine, if you would be my valentine. And that is that. So it's good night from me and from the team.